Hello, and welcome to History Bites, a food history podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Wasberg, and today's episode is Apples in America. Although they're not native to North America, apples are often considered quintessentially American. But why? To find out, we have to go back, way back, and get scientific. Apples originated in Kazakhstan. The Northern Silk Road also passed through Kazakhstan, and it's likely that apples were spread to Europe as merchants brought home fruit and seeds from the tastiest varieties. Apples were quickly established as the favorite fruit in colder northern climes like Germany, northern France, and Britain, where fruit production was more limited than that of Mediterranean cultures. Even today in the mountains of Kazakhstan, you'll find forests where apple trees dominate. Some are the tallest trees in the forest. From tiny, crab-type apples to enormous ones that rival modern varieties, Kazakhstan has some of the most genetically diverse orchards in the world. But genetic diversity is written into apple reproduction. Each time you plant an apple seed, you're playing the genetic lottery, as no apple is the same as its parents. In fact, nearly every apple you can get in the store today is a product of grafting, a technique in which a branch of a host tree is attached to the rootstock of another tree. In the colder zones of North America, apples are often grafted onto hardy crabapple rootstock. This means that each grafted tree is essentially a clone of the host tree. They're genetically identical. This technique is great for propagating an apple already proven to be delicious, but when European colonists first began arriving on North American shores, the saplings they brought with them didn't tend to do that great. It was the more portable but wild-card apple seeds that fared better, adapting to local climates, soils, and weather patterns to produce fruit that was often a far cry from our modern dessert apples. The wild-card apples could end up being something sweet and delicious, but more often the flavor was too tart or dry to be edible fresh. Which is why most settlers converted them into hard cider, or fed them to their pigs to create a sweet and succulent pork. The more edible apples were often dried and used all winter long to make dried apple pies, sauce, or in the case of Pennsylvania Dutch, to make schnitz und knepp, a mixture of dried apples, the schnitz, dumplings, the knepp, and often, but not always, ham. Even apples that were not particularly sweet were tastier when their sugars were concentrated by drying. Hard cider was the drink of choice for Americans from the 18th century to the mid-19th century. During the Revolutionary War, founding fathers like John Adams considered it a wholesome drink and perfect for accompanying breakfast. Of course, in those days, breakfast was more likely to contain steak and tongue than it was eggs and pancakes. Hard cider was also considered an appropriate drink for children. Remember, this is a time in American history when small beer and small ale was considered a mild children's drink. Anything other than the freshest direct-from-the-spring water was suspect for daily drinking. So mildly alcoholic beverages like small beer and cider were consumed instead. 
And if you are the type of person who is interested in homemade sodas, you'll know that ginger ale and root beer were also, once upon a time, fermented with yeast into mildly alcoholic beverages. Cider continued to dominate as American's beverage of choice until about the time of the Civil War, when German immigrants, bottom-fermenting yeast, and the ease of producing barley in the Midwest and transporting it elsewhere, unlike heavy and bulky apples, began to sway the public to beer drinking. The transition of American life from a producer lifestyle to a consumer lifestyle also helped. People were no longer making their own cider and hard alcohol like Applejack which is made by repeatedly freezing hard cider until only the alcohol is left. They were buying it instead. Prohibition dealt the final blow, and American cider is only just now recovering. Apples that are good for hard cider are often not very good for eating. Tart or even bitter apples help make hard cider delicious. Good cider apples also need high sugar content to encourage yeast to produce more alcohol creating a beverage with higher alcohol content overall. These types of apples are sometimes called bitter sweets or bitter sharps, and almost all are heirlooms. The majority of research into discovering and creating new varieties and cultivars occurred in the late 19th and early 20th century, after hard cider had fallen out of favor. So heirlooms are pretty much all that's left. These heirloom varieties were the products of seeding apples rather than grafting them. And perhaps the most famous propagator of wildcard apples was John Chapman, an early 19th century Swedenborgian missionary to the Old Northwest, better known these days as Johnny Appleseed. Born on September 26, 1774 in Massachusetts to Nathaniel and Sarah Chapman, John Chapman left Massachusetts as a young man after his mother died and his father remarried. He traveled west at the age of 18 with his younger brother Nathaniel in 1792. His first orchard was planted near Warren, Pennsylvania, with seeds he picked out of the pomace of cider mills. Pomace is the stuff that's left over after pressing cider. He did not broadcast seeds, as popular imagery depicts, but rather planted small nurseries from seed fencing in areas with brambles to protect the saplings from animals. He would return to these nurseries on a circuit, selling the saplings when they were ready to be transplanted. He traveled throughout Pennsylvania, parts of northern Virginia, present-day Ohio, and Indiana in his lifetime, planting orchards and selling saplings wherever he went. Sometime in the 1790s, he converted to the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, an 18th century Swedish scientist and theologian. Swedenborgians are Christians whose beliefs are based on the writings of Swedenborg, who claimed to receive visions and visitations from God and angels, elucidating a new church with Jesus Christ at the center. One of the main differences between Swedenborgianism and other Christian sects is that Swedenborgs do not believe in the Trinity but rather that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all manifestations of the same God. Swedenborgians also believe that all Christians who hold similar beliefs are part of their new church. Part of why Johnny planted seeds rather than grafting had to do with his personal belief that grafting was an abomination. 
and that planting from seed was the purest and best way to reproduce plants as God intended. In 1800, he arrived near Licking Creek in present-day Ohio, part of the refugee tract, which was land set aside for British Canadians who fought in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. Johnny planted nurseries there in advance of settlement, thereby making the land more valuable. As an itinerant missionary and businessman in one, John Chapman eschewed modern conveniences and was a vegetarian. In fact, he valued animal life so highly, it is said he once put out a fire he had been warming himself at because he noticed mosquitoes flying into the flames and dying. He would also purchase or barter for animals, mostly horses, that were being abused, and either set them loose or rehouse them with gentler families. He traveled from settlement to settlement, wearing cast-off clothing or even sacks, and rarely wore shoes, even in winter. As a Christian emulating the teachings of Jesus Christ, he often gave away his few gifted possessions to those he thought needed them more than he did. He ate cornmeal mush made in the pot he wore on his head, or accepted bread and milk from settlers he visited to sell saplings and spread the Swedenborgian gospel. He entertained young boys by showing them how he was nearly impervious to pain by sticking pins in his feet. And he made fast friends of little girls by handing out bits of calico and ribbons. It is said he would refuse food from a family until he was certain there was enough for the children, who likely would have gone without in poor households entertaining guests. In the evenings, he would read from one of Emanuel Swedenborg's 18 published books by the firelight. Although settlers were often moving into territory already occupied by indigenous peoples, John Chapman was considered sort of a medicine man by many tribes, and was treated kindly and with respect by them. However, he sometimes used this relationship to his advantage by warning settlers of impending native attacks over disputed land as settlements moved farther west. As the settlers moved west, so would Johnny, always ahead of the settlements preparing the way with his nurseries and orchards. He died in 1845 near Fort Wayne, Indiana. John Chapman's legacy was such that Ohio and Pennsylvania are still littered with orchards and old apple trees. We may never know how many new varieties were discovered from his trees, but he helped embed the apple as America's favorite fruit. The dominance of apples in the early American diet can be found in recipes and references. One of my favorite passages in Laura Ingalls Wilder's Farmer Boy, which takes place in upstate New York, is when Laura recounts the laden supper table Almanzo's mother had set. Almanzo ate four large helpings of apples and onions fried together. He ate roast beef and brown gravy and mashed potatoes and cream carrots and boiled turnips and countless slices of buttered bread with crab apple jelly. As a child, the idea of eating apples and onions together disgusted me. Mostly because onions disgusted me. But now that I'm an adult and have embraced the gospel of good alliums, apples and onions is indeed a very tasty dish. To make it at home, peel and slice up one apple, and do the same to one large onion. 
In a large cast iron skillet, melt a tablespoon of butter, lard, or bacon fat over medium heat. Or, for any vegetarians out there, your favorite vegetable oil. Add the onions and cook until the slices are soft and golden. Add the apple slices and continue cooking, stirring from time to time, until the apples are tender. This dish is especially good with pork or sausages, but you can serve it any way you like, including, just as it is, with bread and butter on the side. Another easy recipe common to early America is applesauce. In the days before fine mesh sieves and chinois, which many of you know by their familiar shape as perforated metal cones on a three-legged stand, often accompanied by a wooden pestle perfect for pureeing apples for sauce, applesauce in those days was often chunky, which is how my mother makes it and how I like it. To make applesauce the old-fashioned way, set a large, heavy-bottomed pot over medium-low heat. Peel and core your apples. I like a mixture of heirloom varieties. If your apples are dry, add a quarter cup of water to get the cooking started. But if they're juicy, don't bother. Add the peeled and sliced apples to the pot as you go, so that the bottom ones cook down to the sauce, and the slices you add last keep most of your shape. Slice them thin, but not too thin. You want some chunks, but nothing too big. If your apples are sweet, You shouldn't need to add much of anything in the way of sweetener. In our house, a dish of natural applesauce with a sprinkling of apple pie spice and a splash of heavy cream makes a delicious dessert. No crust, crumble, or cake needed. If you'd like to make your own apple pie spice, just mix together cinnamon, ginger, nutmeg, and cloves. But cinnamon should be the predominant spice. This applesauce recipe is also good for canning if you're so inclined. Just ladle the hot sauce into hot, sterilized jars and process in a boiling water bath for at least 20 minutes for quarts and 15 minutes for pints. Today it isn't always easy to find heirloom varieties, but the prospects are getting better all the time. In the latter half of the 19th century, apples and orchards became big business, and people began to buy apples rather than grow their own. Commercial orchards began to develop varieties and look for new ones. In fact, one of the most famous American apples, the Red Delicious, started out very different from today's incarnation. In the 1870s, an Iowa farmer named Jesse Hyatt chopped down a volunteer apple sapling three separate times before he finally decided to let the stubborn tree live. It eventually bore an elongated red and yellow striped fruit. He submitted it to an 1893 contest held by the Stark Brothers Nursery of Louisiana, Missouri. The Stark Brothers were looking for a new all-purpose variety, and Hyatt called his Hawkeye. The apple won the contest, and the Stark Brothers bought the rights to the apple and began grafting seedlings and promoting the new variety all over the country, including showing it at the 1904 World's Fair under the name Stark's Delicious. With the newly completed Great Northern Railway, they sent carloads of seedlings to the Willamette Valley in Washington and Oregon. The soil and climate there were perfect for orcharding all kinds of fruits, and Stark's Delicious was no exception. In 1923, one New Jersey orchardist reported that one freak limb of the tree had turned bright red, while the rest of the apples on the tree were still green. Paul Stark son of founder Clarence, 
reportedly paid $6,000 for the limb, and Red Delicious, as it had been called since 1914 when a competitor Golden Delicious came onto the scene, began its long decline into a fruit cultivated more for beauty and keeping qualities than taste. The thicker, dark red skin of the Red Delicious, although rich in antioxidants, grew increasingly bitter and the flesh increasingly bland. The skin also made the apple able to better stand up to shipment and hid bruises. Apple grading began to be influenced by the Red Delicious, and the intensity and coverage of red color began to be a hallmark of only the highest grades of apples. But that caused one problem for apple lovers everywhere. Red Delicious were some of the only apples that could meet those high standards. Sweetness was also an important factor in grading. The sweeter, the better. And sizing, too, with larger apples getting a higher grade. So, while Red Delicious met all those standards, many other incredibly tasty heirloom and newer variety apples did not. Russeting, which is where some or all of the skin of an apple turns a rough brownish green, is also a negative on the grading scale. Even though russeting can be the result of anything from weather to pests to damage to the fruit early in growth. This negative on the scale means that heirloom varieties like the Long Island russet don't make the grade at all. This grading has greatly influenced which apples are grown and sold, as commercially, only the highest grade apples fetch the best price. However, these days, a movement is forming, particularly in Europe, to allow lower graded fruits and vegetables to be sold commercially, so that both farmers and consumers can benefit. Farmers, from the extra income from produce that might otherwise be composted or sold as animal feed, and consumers from lower prices on perfectly good produce. It's called the ugly fruit and vegetable movement. Alas, this movement has yet to make much headway in the United States. Because they so often made the grade, by the 1980s, Red Delicious made up more than 75% of Washington State's apple crop. Unfortunately, consumer demand waned significantly in the 90s, as other varieties, mostly Asian introductions like Fuji and Gala, came onto the market. These are thinner-skinned and have more flavor, although they are still mostly quite large and quite sweet. In 2000, President Bill Clinton was compelled to sign a bailout for Washington's apple producers due to overproduction and the inability of a crop that takes years to establish to change as quickly as American tastes. Some orchards across the country still harbor older varieties of Red Delicious, but many commercial orchards replace their dwarf trees as often as every five to eight years, as that's the time when production levels in the trees start to decline. Thankfully, heirloom apples are starting to make a comeback. Old varieties like Northern Spy, Arkansas Black, Rhode Island Greening, Lady, Stamen Winesap, Gravenstein, and Newtown Pippin are starting to make a comeback even among amateur apple connoisseurs, and there are apple detective societies around the country dedicated to finding and preserving lost heirloom varieties. Others, like the Fedco Seed Company in Maine, are dedicated to propagating heirloom varieties by selling and shipping apple seedlings and saplings all over the country. My own personal favorite is opalescent, a variety which even some heirloom connoisseurs have never heard of. 
I've only seen it on five old, old trees at one orchard not too far from where I live. Opalescent trees produce large, reddish-gold fruit with fragrant, sweet, but not particularly crisp golden flesh. Opalescents make fantastic sauce. Another favorite in our house is the Northern Spy, which ripens late in the season and has very crisp, juicy, off-dry flesh. Northern Spies are good keeping apples, which originated around 1800 in an upstate New York seedling orchard, much like those John Chapman planted. If you are lucky enough to live in an area with old orchards, I encourage you to visit them and seek out and purchase heirloom varieties. Ask your orchardists about the heirlooms they have, taste to your heart's content, and find your favorites, and then advocate for them. You wouldn't want your favorite heirloom variety to be chopped down to make room for new trees. And if you manage to find an old red delicious tree that seems closer to the Hawkeye than the modern bitter skin varieties, let me and others know. Maybe through dedicated tasting and purchasing, we can bring the red delicious back to the apple it was supposed to be. And if you can find an archer that produces good hard cider, don't be afraid to patronize them either. Buying from local producers only helps the local economy. Plus, whether you're quaffing hard cider made from bitter sharps or eating russeted heirlooms, you'll literally be tasting history. That's it for today's episode of History Bites. If you'd like to learn more about apples in America, visit thefoodhistorian.com and click on blog for a hyperlinked bibliography of this episode, including links to great digitized primary sources. I'm your host, Sarah Wasberg. Thanks for listening.